Genesis 2:18 through 25. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not a helper, found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. The word of the Lord. Well, good morning. It's good to see all of you this morning. Hope you had a good week. Uh, if you're a Wisconsin fan, I know it wasn't a great week. I apologize for that. If you're a Tennessee fan, it was a wonderful week. We won. We beat Florida. Used to be a pretty good rivalry. We haven't won. We've only like won once out of the last 17 years. So to win that game was pretty uh, amazing. Uh, but it was also really good because I got to be back with my wife I'd seen in uh, several weeks. That was really good. Uh, I also had the privilege of being back on my uh, Covenant Seminary campus just for a very brief time. Uh, there was a um, one of my favorite professors, Jerem Bars, uh, was retiring. And so they honored him uh, at a uh, conference, uh, Francis Schaefer constant, uh, conference that they do every year. So I had the privilege of being able to interact with him and hug him. Uh, I don't know if there aren't many people. You, maybe you know somebody this in your life, but there's some people when you give them a hug, um, you know <laughs> their hug to you is very sincere. Uh, if for no other reason, that they hold on to you just a little longer uh, than you normally expect a hug to last, but it's done intentionally because they're trying to communicate they really genuinely care for you as a human being. Um, that's, just, that's just one little reason uh, of, uh, that demonstrates why I love uh, Jerem so much. Um, so it was an honor uh, to, to be with him uh, and, and be part of that celebration as well. So it was, uh, but it is, uh, at the end of the day, it's good to be back here. Um, I, um, it's good to be back in the crisp fall uh, air. I love the fall for lots of reasons, uh, but I like the coolness of the weather. But enough about me. Let's jump into our series. We continue here in Genesis uh, looking at what is the first of five books of the Constitution that God gave his people as they're about to enter the, prom the land that he had promised to Abraham, their forefather. And uh, we, we, we have seen that when Moses writes this and gives this to his people, He's one of the things that he's wanting to demonstrate clearly to the Israelites is that their history doesn't simply go back to their days of slavery, but in fact, go all the way back to the very beginning of all space and time. 
And furthermore, that their God over all the other gods that they have experienced and heard about and been around and exposed to, it is Yahweh who is ultimately the creator of the entire cosmos. And Yahweh is their God. We have also said that it's important to keep in mind that although Genesis is written for us, it wasn't written to us. And so we need to hear the original, how the original audience would have heard it as best as we can before we make application to ourselves. Now, this morning, as we jump in back into Genesis, uh, we are actually going, we're skipping ahead. If you're following along, you've realized we've skipped a passage, and that's simply because there was a, an administrative and communication miscue on my part. Um, and so your preacher next week was already preparing uh, the next immediate passage. So I'm going to preach what would have been next week. But as I hope I'll be able to demonstrate, I don't think we lose anything by the, 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 the break in the narrative. Um, and I think that'll be confirmed again next week. Each passage, I think, in a lot of ways stand on their own. And so it shouldn't really mess with our understanding of this passage this morning. And finally, I just need to say, as I studied this passage, uh, it got to the point where it was like, wow, this is way too much uh, for just one sermon. So that's actually good news for you. So instead of having one really long sermon, you're going to have two shorter sermons, uh, but it will be on the same passage. So part one today, part two in two weeks. <laughs> if that's all confusing, it'll, it'll work itself out. Anyway, will you pray with me? One more time as we come to God's word. Heavenly Father, we do ask now that as we engage with these words that were given thousands of years ago, literally, that you would meet with us, that however we find ourselves coming into this room today, whether we are tired, whether we are excited, whether we are downcast, whether we are confused, whether we are doubting, whether we are full of faith, however we find ourselves this morning, would you convince us that because these words ultimately come from you and that your spirit is still at work with them, that at the end of the day, you see us exactly where we are this morning and you intend to meet with us in that place. And that ultimately, your love for us is so great that no matter where our level of faith is, you have gone as far as sending your own son that we might have life through him, that we might know you. And this word that we have in front of us even now is still a gift to us. And so would you send your spirit and speak through me? We don't need to hear from the one speaking to the mic. We need to hear from you. So meet us in this place, however we find ourselves, so that when we leave here, we know, we will know, that we have met with the still living God. We pray these things for Christ's sake. Amen. So you know how there are, uh, there are some stereotypical uh, phrases or questions uh, that we kind of go to as social creatures when we're in those awkward and silent social situations, right? Those things that we, we, we speak because we sense we're in an atmosphere where we feel like we're being forced into some kind of mandatory conversation 
in that moment, maybe in an elevator, maybe on a bus, maybe somewhere where it's, it's maybe just you and one other human being for a very short period of time, and it just feels awkward to sit in silence. You've been there before. And so I'm just curious, like, do you, do you have a go-to question <laughs> in that situation? Me as an introvert, I'm totally fine with the silence. <laughs> I don't mind the awkward silence. I, I can let it go. But we all have a question, I, I think, if, if, if we need to actually ask a question and have that small talk. I wasn't talking to you. <laughs> Does yours do that? Randomly, just, anyway. <clears throat> so, wow. Small talk right there. She couldn't handle the silence as I was taking a sip of my water. So what's your go-to question? Maybe it's the weather. Hey, how, how, hey, the weather's been weird lately, huh? How about, or maybe it's, uh, if you're a sports fan, how, your, sport, your favorite sports team. How about them fill in the blank? Or if you're a professional, hey, man, the market really took a hit last week, right? <laughs> All these questions that we go to to try to fill in that awkward silence. And in the last couple of years, I would make the case, and I think we've all experienced it, that there's actually, I think, a new question has been offered and, and is now in our tool belt whenever we need to, 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 have, to, to engage that awkward silence because of the pandemic. The question now is, so, wow, that, those couple of years during the pandemic, that was, that was really awkward and, and bizarre, wasn't it, right? It's a, new, it's a new bonus question that we have. We can add to the other ones we've always had. Now, I think there's lots of things that such a silence filler type of statement might refer to. Well, those couple of years during the pandemic, that was, that was really bizarre. But I tend to think that the most acute realization and the most palpable way that made that particular time so bizarre, of all the things that did, I think the most obvious, the most palpable was our lack of access to the physical presence of other human beings. And I honestly think it will be years before we're able to realize and fully calculate the toll of not being with each other, the toll that that took on each of us. I, th I think it'll be years before we're sociologists will be able to say, here, here are some of the consequences of that. We're learning them now, but I think there's still plenty more that we will learn. And the passage in front of us actually could have told us what to expect, could have told us what we were about to experience heading into a pandemic, even before we experienced it. Because Yahweh is, as we have seen, is creating a physical dwelling place for himself. He is also sharing that space, though. And our God did not have to do this, as we've said. Unlike how we, as men and women, think and go about life and make decisions, God was not lonely. He was not insecure. He was not afraid. He didn't struggle with codependency. He had nothing to prove, relationally. 
In other words, he was not in need of other creatures at all of any kind to make him feel good about himself. In fact, nowhere in these initial instructions are Yahweh's image bearers called specifically. In these first two passages, there's nowhere that we see God's image bearers called to praise him verbally. To worship him. The first praising, in fact, and celebrating done by a human being was done relationally, horizontally, to another human being. The very first praising in all of the Bible was not vertical praising of God. But as God had made all the other living creatures and commissioned them to multiply, to fill the earth, to spread the fruit of his creative work across the globe, he commissions humanity to do the same thing. We've seen this before. But unlike you and me, God is not limited in how wide his relational capacity is. And Yahweh wanted lots and lots of his image bearers around to both share friendship with and also subdue the earth and take dominion over it. Again, not in a way that was destructive or self-serving, but in a way that was good and benevolent and just and was conducive to the flourishing of all the things that God had made. And thus far in Genesis 1 into here into this part of 2, things are progressing nicely. We have heard it again and again. It is good. It is good. It is good. It is very good. As someone somewhere along the line has so eloquently put it in summing up Genesis 1, God don't make no junk. And after we are told about the creation of humanity on day six, male and female, we come here to chapter two, and Moses gives us a detailed account of how that went. Again, you'll, you'll see the account of Adam next week. He's created in the dust of the, from the dust of the earth. God will breathe life into him. He's given his task to be the vice regent of God. And he enters into a close relationship with God. But then, in this passage now, before us, there is a problem. And it's not sin. Yet. Verse 18. There God says, It is not good for man to be alone. Thus far, we have seen and heard blessing after blessing. It is good. It is good. Again, again. But for the very first time, before there's any sin, selfishness, fallenness, brokenness in the world, God himself speaks a malediction. For the very first time, God acknowledges himself about the current situation of his creative work that it is not good. Verse 
Now, you know that there's a philosophical conundrum that you can engage with and argue about. Maybe you've heard and engaged in it yourself. Can God really do anything? <laughs> My boys, especially Walt, uh, out of what I think was a really warped sense of humor when they were smaller, uh, I, I think uh, they, they, they used to find it alarmingly amusing to come to their pastor dad and try to ask questions that would stump me. <laughs> they took pleasure in this. For instance, one they really wanted to know, Dad, can God do anything? Depends what you mean by that. Can God, do you have a more specific question? Yeah, can God make a square circle? <laughs> he thought he was so cute. <laughs> they would think they had stumped their dad. Looking at reading this passage here, I think we could ask another question <laughs> in line at light of that about God's ability, <laughs> what he can and can't do. Here's the question. Can God make a fully satisfied, non-relational human being? No. It's something God can't do. He can't make a square circle. And according to Genesis 2, he apparently can't make a fully satisfied, non-relational human being. So do you catch the profundity in that? When God says it is not good for man to be alone, here's the setting. <laughs> it's Adam and God, his creator. That was not sufficient in God's mind, for his image bearer. It's in our DNA as human beings created in the image of a triune God who dwells throughout all eternity and before eternity in community. Three persons in one God created in that image. It is in our DNA to be in relationship with other human beings, other image bearers. We cannot, in fact, fulfill the cultural mandate, the grand commission to be fruitful and multiply, to subdue and take dominion, to be his image bearers alone. It's impossible. And it's not just because we can't procreate on our own, though that's part of it. We are just not meant, it's not built within us to do life alone. In fact... You can't even love God properly outside of relationships with other human beings. There's a, there's a conversation that Jesus is having, and he's being asked in a way that's trying to trip him up. And he's asked, what is the greatest commandment? Boil it down to one, Jesus. What is the greatest commandment? And Jesus says to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. 
Jesus has asked for one, the greatest of all, and Jesus answers with two. (laughs) Because for Jesus, the two commandments are inextricably linked. You can't love God and not love your neighbor. And that's because we are told right here in Genesis 2, (laughs) we can't do this alone. We weren't meant to. We were built just like our God is in existence from all eternity to be in communion and relationship. To be made in the image of a triune God means necessarily to be in relationship with other image bearers. Now, for a vast array of personalities that's here, but think about the entire world, (laughs) as vast as the being of an eternal triune God, as vast as the personalities are in this life, introverts, extroverts, verbal processors, internal thinkers, the gregarious types, the hermits, (laughs) how this plays out, what this looks like, it's going to vary. It's going to look different for all of us. But what doesn't change among all the diversity in our personalities is our inability to function humanly solo. Impossible. But it's not merely an emotional state that's being addressed here. It's not simply that man was walking around with his head down and lonely. Yeah, that's, that's part of it. <laughs> but the greater concern is that he was alone, that he needed one to work alongside him, a partner, in order to be, car- to be able to carry out the creational and cultural commission and mandate. As the quote in your bulletin says by Christopher Wright, man does not just need company, he needs help. Male and female are not necessary Excuse me, male and female are necessary not only for mutual relationship in which they will reflect God, though certainly for that, but also for mutual help in carrying out the creation mandate entrusted to humanity. It's not good for man to be alone. Okay, God, (laughs) so what will you do about it? God says, I will therefore make a helper fit for him. A helper fit for him. Now pause for a second. Because as a side note, as a preacher, I feel it's my responsibility to to explore what the text is is saying. As you've heard me say, taking into account the original cultural context in which it's being spoken to affirm and say, this is what the Bible's saying. But I also see it's a responsibility of myself as a preacher, considering our current cultural context and all the cultural context up until today to say what it's not saying. And one area that I think through the years the church has allowed a non-biblical way of thinking influence it surrounds this phrase that's translated helper fit for him. In the process of translation, from one language to another, especially when the audiences of of said respective languages are either distant in space or time or both, as is the case here, it's not only important that we consider the original language in how to translate a word or thought, 
but we must also consider the audience and how they will actually hear the word that we use to translate <laughs> the original word. So I'm not sure what you hear when you hear this term, helper. But if you've been following along with the narrative and the grand commission and the calling that humanity has been given, <laughs> with its kingly and regal language to be fruitful, multiply, take dominion, rule, subdue, this calling as helper cannot be an insignificant secondary role. In English, in our context, the phrase, a helper fit for him, in a lot of ways probably sounds kind of limited. Maybe it sounds like kind of a backup, perhaps a behind-the-scenes role. Maybe like that apprentice that grabs the tools for the master plumber and brings it to him. The helper. <laughs> fit for him. That's not the Hebrew phrase. First of all, when God says he will make a helper fit for him, it is a compound phrase in Hebrew that means matching him. Literally, it means, if we were just literally going to translate it, like opposite him. God is going to make a helper fit for him that is the perfect complementary by being opposite and equal fit and partner. That would be my translation. I know it's way too long and they would never, it doesn't fit. Too long. <laughs> a perfect complementary by being opposite and equal fit and partner. But secondly, the specific Hebrew word that English translators have translated that one word, helper, the Hebrew word is azer. And in the Old Testament, the word azer is used elsewhere for only two reasons. It's either used to describe how a neighboring nation comes to the military aid of another nation when they are at war or under attack, or for how God himself comes to the aid and rescues his own people. That's an azer. It's often, in fact, when used to describe God as azer, it's often used in conjunction with words like deliverer and shield. In other words, elsewhere in the Old Testament, there is no sense, there is no connotation of subordinate or secondary or minor or inferior. None. <laughs> Zilch. If that is our understanding of the word helper fit for him, we didn't get it from the Bible, is what I'm saying. <laughs> Nowhere else does it have an inferior connotation. To help someone, as the word azer conveys, doesn't imply a weaker or inferior state of the party that's doing the helping but rather implies that the strength and the ability of the party being helped is inadequate by itself. As one commentator notes, woman was not created to serve the man, but to serve with the man. 
And I would suggest, humbly, that a far better English word for azer than helper would be strategic ally. I can certainly tell you that that describes far better <laughs> my personal experience with Jen. As an azer, it would be amazingly insulting to simply say, introduce my wife as the one who helps me. She's my strategic ally. <laughs> you know, there used to be a bumper sticker. I haven't seen it in years. Thank you, Jesus. God is my co-pilot. That's terrible theology. <laughs> to think of Jen as simply my helper would be like thinking of God as our azer, as my co-pilot. God points out that this is what is needed. <laughs> if, God's going, if Adam excuse me, is going to be able to carry out his cultural mandate, He's going to need an equal and opposite complement to who he is. So how does God go about it? Well, thus far in the first chapter and a half of Genesis, when God decides to do something, he simply does it. He could simply say, let there be an equal and opposite complement to Adam, and it would be done. That's not how he goes about it. Instead, what do we read? Verse 19, out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what we, he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. Now, at first glance, that might seem like a rabbit trail of sorts. No pun intended, see what it did there? What does that have to do with this? <laughs> Malediction, it's not good. Fine, I'm going to make a helper fit for him. So God brings all the other animals. We, hear this, we have these two verses of Adam naming these other animals. What's happening here <laughs> is perhaps to demonstrate to Adam, to make him more acutely aware the fact that he's alone, he can't do this alone. And to realize what God already knew. There's a, there's a tension building. Adam, there, the, you can imagine the giraffes coming, the elephants coming, the chimpanzees, all these animals coming. And the text, if, and, and this would have been first passed down orally, as you're listening to the story, you're like, okay, maybe what's going to come next? What's going to come next? Nothing. <laughs> Adam's disappointed after disappointment after disappointment. None of these work. None of these fit the bill. The tension would be building. If you're here this morning, it's just possible that you might currently know this type of tension in your own reality right now as you feel alone and you become more and more acutely aware that you were not built to be alone and you long not to be alone. 
I want you to hear that as hard and as difficult as that season of life can be, and, and it can happen in a marriage as well, not just for singles. A season of becoming more acutely aware of your aloneness. But I would want you to hear in the same way that God is governing and orchestrating this passage, this moment in Adam's life. So in your season, your current experience is not a sick cosmic joke. It's not a sign of his displeasure in you. I honestly cannot remember if I've told this story or not, but this is where I'll finish today. <laughs> Have I told the story of my oldest son running away from home? Please shake your head no. Thank you. <clears throat> my oldest son, who is about to ship out, he's going to be an, office, an engineering officer on a ship, It's always been an explorer from day one. In kindergarten, you know, when they say come dressed and the last day of school is what you want to be when you grow up, he came to school dressed up with a coon hat and a rifle. He wanted to be an explorer. Everybody else is a teacher, a doctor. He's an explorer. <laughs> Still is an explorer to this day. When he was nine, we were living in Atlanta, Georgia, and it was the uh, end of the day. Walt and, and their younger brother was already, were already in bed. We could not get Bud to go to bed. No matter what we did. We were past the arguing. We were, it, was way, it was 1030 at night, and he had had enough. Nine-year-old Bud looks at me and says, I'm done with this family. I'm out of here. I'm like, what are you going to do? I'm running away. Well, if you're going to run away, um, I mean, you're going to be gone for a little while, I'm, I'm assuming, so you're going to need some extra clothes. i tell you what, and you're going to need to eat while you're gone because mom and I won't be there to make your meals. i tell you what, you go upstairs, pack your bag with some clothes you can take with you. I'll go in the kitchen and, and prepare a, a sack lunch for you. That at least gets you through tomorrow. Fine, he goes upstairs. First time I've been able to get him to go upstairs. My, Jen is looking at me like, what are you doing? I was like, just go with me on this. I go ahead and make his lunch. I got his brown sack lunch. I'm at the front door. I open the door. I'm waiting at the front door like this, waiting for him to come down the stairs. Here he comes. He's got his backpack on. I'm holding it right here. Doesn't say a word to me. Doesn't even look at me. Just grabbed the bag and walked out the front door. Okay. Jen's like, now it's 10.30 at night, okay? It's pitch black outside. Jen looks at me and she's like, seriously, what are you doing? I was like, go with me on this. Now, we lived in a cul-de-sac, and we were at the very top of the hill. So when Bud leaves, he walks down the driveway. He's in the cul-de-sac. Now he's in the middle of the street. He's walking down the middle of the street away from our house. I go around to the back, go out the back door, walk around the back of the house, and now I'm going from bush to bush to tree, following him as he's going down the street. And he's mad. 
He's got his backpack on his shoulders. Lunch. He's the whole time he's just shrugging. He gets to the end of the cul-de-sac. There's a street there. He stands right in the middle of the intersection. Literally does this. Turns around, walks back, straight up the stairs, goes to bed. That was the end of the night. <laughs> now, I have been in seasons before when I have felt, where are you, God? <laughs> a season of aloneness, whether it's in, in, in being single or whether it's being in a, in a marriage that is struggling. Either one. Can feel, you can feel alone. And you can wonder, as I'm walking this direction, Are you taking notice? The reality is, the entire time, seasons that I've been in, I've been able to look back and realize the entire time, whether I didn't, even if, if I didn't recognize it or know it, God was right there behind the bush, behind the tree, all the way down. You were never out of his sight. You are never out of his good will towards you and his benevolence, his desire to be in relationship with you. He is the one who made us for a relationship. And there are times when even our closest relationships don't give us what they were intended to give. And that's because of what will happen in Genesis 3. We haven't gotten there yet. But this passage, yes, and we haven't said it yet, and we'll get into it a little bit more next week. It is a wedding. It's, it's, it's interesting the Bible starts with a wedding and actually ends with a wedding. Because the Bible tells us that Jesus is a better Adam than the original Adam. Jesus, not only, as we will see in two weeks, not only gives up his rib, he gets crushed. He gives up his life on your behalf, my behalf, because that's how much he wants a relationship with his people. And in just a few moments, we're going to come to his table where we're actually told that, that his body is broken, that we might have a relationship with him. Despite the ways that we fail in relationships and our contributions to our relationships as difficult as they are, and also the way we have been hurt in relationships. Jesus allows his body to be broken that we might know full restoration, starting with him, our relationship of what it means to be created in his image, fully restored. And one day we will fully realize that. In the meantime, he gives us a meal as we wait for for the last wedding, the last marriage feast. The marriage feast, the wedding feast of the Lamb. In the midst of whatever season you find yourself in right now, know one thing. You may feel alone, but you are not alone. And this meal demonstrates that. Believe that this morning. As I believe that for myself. Let's pray. 
Heavenly Father, we recognize that we see things in this passage, the, the need for community and relationships, and there's part of us that cries out, yes, we know that feeling. There have been great moments that we've had in relationships. Those moments feel true and wonderful, but often our relationships don't feel that way, or our lack of relationship certainly doesn't feel that way. Would you convince us? That your love is so great for us, Jesus, that as the second Adam, as the better Adam, you have gone to great lengths that we might be re reunited with you to know, to be, have our image more and fully restored, that our relationship with you might be rightly redeemed, and that you are committed as long as it might take in this life. You are still committed. And in fact, Jesus, you prayed for it in John 17, that our relationships here would be healed. May we see that. May we see, first of all, and believe your love in restoring our relationship with you. And may that be the fuel that fuels us as we go out and seek relationships with others and seeks the reconciliation in relationships with others. We pray these things for Christ's sake. Amen. Would you stand